welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a very good evening to、uh, one of our favorite guests on the show, our very own from the China Africa Project, also a PhD candidate at Fudan Dashuai Fudan University in Shanghai, Tendai Musakwa. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. And、uh, you may recognize Tendai's name、uh, from his posts on our Facebook page. Also, Tendai does this amazing translation project、uh, on our ChinaAfricaProject.com website,、uh, where he goes into the Chinese social media and kind of picks on a topic of interest between Sino-African relations and, and translates a lot of it. And we're going to focus. We're going to continue our theme of ivory coverage. And I, our goal is not to bore the hell out of you with nonstop ivory coverage. But really, to to kind of look at the complexity of this issue from so many different angles, and one of the criticisms that both Kobus and I have kind of fired against some of the members of our own community on Facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject、uh, and the general in Western environmental movement as a whole is this oversimplification of the of the issue, and that oversimplification typically boils down to China must shut down the carving factories, and that will then stop the killing. The other one is. If the buying stops, the killing stops. That's the wild aid sign. And 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 what we've heard you know, on both on this podcast with Huang Hongxiang and other journalists and the like, people from the Chinese and the African side, is that it is vastly more complicated than that. And that's what we're going to get into today with with Tendai. Tendai, let's first start about. When you go out onto social media and you talk and you you kind of hear about and you're following what people are saying、uh, in the Chinese social media universe about the、uh, the ivory issue, what is the general the meme or the theme of what people are saying? Most people are disgusted by the poaching,、um, which isn't surprising considering the sort of demographic of of the people who、uh, comment on stories on the internet. Uh, they're usually young, predominantly middle to upper class、um, Chinese people, so they're very much into、uh, environmentalism and activism. So they search for those stories, and when something happens, like what happens in Zimbabwe, they are outraged and they comment on it and forward um, stories um, about these issues to each other. So they're very concerned about this kind of thing. Kobus, you know, Tendai just made reference to what happened in Zimbabwe. Give us a little bit of background of what kind of sparked this outrage on Chinese social media with respect to what happened in Zimbabwe. It seems to have taken us to a new low in the、uh, in the ivory poaching business. Yeah, obviously,、um, you know, kind of ivory. When ivory poaching happens, generally, you know, kind of the you have a situation where elephants are shot,、um, and then the tusks are are you know kind of chopped out with using axes.、Um, in this case.、Uh, Someone, we're not exactly sure who,、um, poisoned a, a waterhole in Zimbabwe using cyanide, and then a whole, a whole,、um, uh, you know, kind of herd of elephants basically died.、Um, I, I'm not sure whether the tusks were then removed or not.、Um, I think Tendai would know better. Tendai, do you know about that? Yeah, they did remove some of the tusks, and actually, they did catch the the people who did this.、Um, Uh, three of them are, were jailed for sixteen、um, years, and、uh, they were fined six hundred thousand US dollars each.、Um, so they, they, they did catch the people who, who did this. 
Well, let me just read some of the comments that, that came up. And you found these mostly on what social media platform? Uh, these are comments left uh, in response to a story on iPhone, an iPhone, which is one of the popular news portals in, in China. Okay, so uh, uh, a, a, a netizen from Suzhou, which is just outside of Shanghai, uh, said, quote, arrest the poachers and execute them by shooting. Um, and then another one uh, suggested that it would be good to give the criminals a taste of the water that was poisoned in cyanide. So as you, you know, here's another one that said, savages, I strongly, I strongly support the quick deployment of troops to annihilate these brutes. And I think that touches what you talked about of the anger. And I think you'll be, you might surprise a lot of people, particularly in the West, who look at China as more of a monolithic entity and may be surprised to see that there is some diversity in, the, in public opinion here. Um, does this offer any hope to you that change may come about through social media, as has happened in other instances in China where social media has proven to be very effective at persuading government authorities to change public policy? Yeah, I think so. It definitely gives hope for the future. Um, as you said, social media has been very... Um, has been very influential in terms of Chinese policy making um, because the the people who frequent these uh, social media websites are also people that are influential. They're people who have money and are able to shake things up. So the government pays attention to them. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, like you said, uh, China is diverse. So even though they're very... Uh, sort of vocal people on the internet who are against uh, poaching and um, sort of uh, killing elephants. There are also um, very, very rich people in China who are the ones who buy ivory goods and they don't, um, they don't care what happens to the elephants. They only care about the ivory goods that they get. So there is a diversity in China and uh, it will be interesting to see what happens in the future with this. Uh, young, um, young I, people. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's actually what I wanted to pick up on. Um, you mentioned that, you know, kind of a lot of the netizens are young and committed and like, you know, that, that, um, activism is, is, uh, becoming more popular. Um, do, do you see, uh, a kind of a gap between, like an age gap where, you know, kind of young people are more activists than older people are, um, you know, kind of tend to, tend to just want ivory because it, it has status, uh, connotations. And do you see that that, you know, kind of, that there's a kind of a, a shift in, in the image of ivory that it, it come, would co come to seem kind of old-fashioned or, you know, kind of uncool in, in certain kind of ways. Yeah, it's exactly that. I think young people see ivory as, they don't see it as as the sort of status symbol that older, uh, older people see it as. So as um, China, as the demographic profile of China changes, I think you'll see a change in... Um, China's ivory consumption habits. But for now, there's still a lot of people, older, richer people, who um, who want to buy ivory goods. So it's interesting. It's really a race against time. Can the elephants kind of withstand the social changes in China? So as, as iPhone, as Audi, as BMW, as all of these kind of luxury consumer brands show off status in China and ivory and gold and bling of other forms don't. That's the only hope that the elephants have for the most part. Right, right. Um, 
hopefully uh, people will continue changing their consumption habits um, and uh, hopefully that will offer hope for the elephants. One of the issues that came up in our earlier discussion is is the fact that a lot of Chinese just have no concept of where the ivory actually comes from and the effect that it's having on the ground in terms of their consumption and the, the killing that's happening. Do you think that education would actually change this, that if there are more appearances by the likes of Li Bingbing, uh, Yao Ming, and other celebrities and more aggressive campaigns on social media, that that could affect change? Or is that really just window dressing to an issue that is far too large, kind of like the narcotics issue, that no matter how much we educate, people still take heroin and pot and other things? Um, I think uh, education can help to some extent because there they have been academic studies of um, – this issue and people who there are people who say they don't know like how how ivory gets to China. So I think um, you get people saying that um, they think that it, it, it gets taken out like a like a tooth and the elephant survives, but then that doesn't really happen. So uh, the more awareness there is in China about um, these issues, the more change for the, the more positive change I think we'll see. I, I was surprised by the, the how angry the comments were that you that you translated, and uh, um, I was wondering, you know, kind of 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 all of the comments, you know, popping up, um, you know, kind of relating to this to this uh, you know article, you know, to, uh, relating to this incident in Zimbabwe. Like, what percentage of them were that angry? Like, did you did you get a, a bunch of them that you that was like, ah, oh, who cares? Or, or you know, kind of was was the, the kind of dominant tone this level of anger? It actually surprisingly was very angry in Zimbabwe as well. Uh, I was just looking at the, the the Herald, which is an official sort of um, newspaper in Zimbabwe, and people were saying that uh, the poachers who got 16 years uh, in, in prison, they should get life imprisonment. And people were also saying that uh, the fine should have been higher than 600,000 US dollars. So you got you get a lot of anger in Zimbabwe as well, which is really surprising for me because I was thinking that um, maybe Zimbabweans don't really care about um, elephants that much. They're concerned with the poverty, and unemployment, and a host of other problems that Zimbabwe is facing right now. But they're equally as angry, which which I must say is surprising to me. Was surprising. To yeah, me. I was surprised by that too. Yeah. When you look at the China-Africa um, issue, Eric, do you do yeah. you foresee as a similar kind of? Sorry, um, do, do you foresee a similar kind of kind of reaction developing Vietnam in Vietnam around um, rhino horn? No, or you know, kind of how really is 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 are they universally just don't care? I don't think it's that they don't care. I just think that there is a a real shortage of education, and I don't see. Uh, anybody on the outside actually engaging in an educational initiative that is compelling enough to to persuade people that this is something that's horrific. Uh, you're also fighting uh, thousands, or maybe thousands is an exaggeration, but let's go with you know at least hundreds of years of traditional Chinese medicine lore and belief. Uh, and so for you to simply come up with a great website that says killing rhinos is bad goes against, well, this is what my mother, this is what my grandfather, this is what I've heard, this is what, you know, the doctor says this, the pharmacist says this, you know, all of these different people that I know and trust will, will tell me that this is a good product regardless of its merits. And then, you know, largely some Westerners come from the outside to say, no, don't do this. Well, that makes it a very tough sell. 
And, and that's why I'm not persuaded that you're going to see a lot of change here in Vietnam on that. Uh, the government, I think, will actually make an effort. I think the government will, um, you know, will, will, will do its best in, in many respects. But the government is a very limited means in a country like this. Uh, and that's not to let the government off. It's just it's an explanation of the reality of what it is to govern a country as poor as Vietnam that has 100 million people, most of them earning, you know, marginal incomes, if any. So, so I think that's that's just the the, the painful reality here in 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 China, Tendai. What do you think we'll, we'll do to actually, you know, move the needle to change people's consumption patterns, if, it, if at all? I think, as you mentioned earlier, I think education would be a really big part of this. I don't see... Uh, so where does that education come from, then? Who does that education? Is it Westerners? Is it Chinese? What's the, let's get to what that actually means, the substance of that word. I think it definitely doesn't come from Westerners, because... Um, Chinese uh, people or the Chinese people that I know are very resentful of being, uh, of condescending sort of foreigners, telling them how they should behave. I think the change will come from um, younger people telling their grandparents and their parents um, about the effect of their consumption habits. So um, uh, when you buy an ivory good, it's actually something that an elephant has to be killed for. I think that sort of... um, that sort of education with younger people educating older people will um, is what will change the consumption habits. Because um, similar to Vietnam, I think um, the Chinese government really doesn't have much power over. It, it can't really control what 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 happens because um, the people who buy these uh, these goods are rich people, and they find ways to circumvent. Um, circumvent uh, government laws against uh, against buying ivory goods. So people have connections uh, with uh, with customs, and they can get all of the stuff that's banned in China because they're all connected. It's interesting because it's like the gay marriage debate in the United States. You know, within a decade, it turned, and it turned on the part of young people telling old people that this is what we want. Uh, our, our value structure and our moral structure has changed, and your antiquated laws simply don't reflect what we want. So, I mean, right. it, just to show how deeply entrenched cultural values can change within a decade uh, and, and be effective is very interesting. Kobus, it's interesting what Tendai said as well. I mean, in one of our earlier shows, the one thing you said was, boy, Africans do not respond well to well-meaning white people who have a long history of condescending and, uh, you know, on any number of issues. So that change and that force is not going to come from well-meaning white people in the West who want to, you know, raise awareness about this issue. So it seems like both Africans and Chinese are sensitive to this. Yeah, I think I think Western activists have, they underestimate the, you know, kind of their position in the world. You know, kind of underestimate the... They overestimate the kind of their re- position. They overestimate. Yeah. Yeah, they overestimate their power in the world, but I think they underestimate the level of resentment that people feel relating to people feel about the West. You know, I think that that's central to the issue. Of, to, I think that's one of the central reasons why Japan is refusing to to stop whaling, even though there's absolutely no use for any whale meat in Japan. No Japanese want it. No one wants to eat it. You know, kind of like you can't get it. You can't sell, you can't sell it anywhere. Um, you know, kind of, but they won't stop whaling because 
it's Westerners who's preaching at them all the time. You know, it's you know, kind of. I think Western countries have to find different ways to to communicate. Yeah, yelling and shouting at people is not going to do it on, on either end, and 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 that's difficult though in this particular issue because you know. People are very emotionally connected to these animals, you know, and there's and this this brings up this emotional issue. But you know, Tendai, in an earlier podcast, you know, I, last year, you talked about that the relationship that a lot of people in Zimbabwe have with elephants is far more complicated than it is that is portrayed in the West, um, and that you know, particularly farmers have a complicated relationship, and as a result of that. Um, it's not always easy in Zimbabwe and other countries to gain public support to protect elephants. Yeah, I think that that problem still exists in Zimbabwe, where Zimbabwe is a very poor country and has limited resources. So um, usually when, because elephant poaching happens almost routinely in Zimbabwe, so you get 10 elephants killed um, and people don't really pay much attention to it because Zimbabwe has an overpopulation of elephants there. One twenty thousand elephants, uh, approximately in Zimbabwe, and there's only um, Zimbabwe can, can only hold about fifty, sixty thousand elephants, and elephants destroy crops. So there's a lot of resentment among um, uh, farmers um, and people who rely on the land for their living towards elephants. So that also fuels the government inaction against. Against um, against uh, against against um, uh, elephants, but uh, in this particular case, I think the poisoning had uh, very uh, it had a wide-reaching effect because the, the poisoning of the of the of the water holes also affected um, the farmers and uh, most of Zimbabwe, most of um, most Zimbabweans rely on on farming. And because of that, the government pursued the case very, very aggressively because it also affected the farmers who were living around the national parks and it was embarrassing to the government. So I think that's why they acted um, very quickly in this case. But but usually they, they turn a blind eye to these sorts of things. Yeah, I think one of the one of the, the you know kind of the, there's a whole bunch of really profound issues, really profound philosophical problems that that come up. Um, I think one of them is a perception, very strong, and, and I think to a certain extent, realistic perception in Africa that the only people who care really, really profoundly you know, kind of care about African lives are Africans, um, you know, and that, you know, kind of the, there's a strong perception that people in the, you know, kind of if, you know, if, if a tenth of Africa's population suddenly disappears, people in the West wouldn't even notice, you know. So um, so the only people who, who rhetorically and physically would protect Africans are African people themselves. And you can't, you can't um, trust the West to care about Africans because they have traditionally, they haven't. Um, you know, kind of, so that, that gives a very strong, uh, you know, kind of rhetorical force to this, to this idea that, uh, that Westerners only care about elephants um, and that they don't care about the African lives. You know, kind of in, 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 they don't see the two in balance. Of course, from a Western perspective, we are we are also very very aware of the weight of humankind as a whole on the on the planet. Um, you know, kind of so the idea that there are too many of us, um, you know, that that we are a little bit like vermin, and that the elephants are 
disappearing and that they are somehow represent something wild and uh, you know kind of uh, um you know something ancient and we you know kind of that, that we will never be able to represent that i think you know kind of is carries its its own emotional weight in western discourse so you know so so you have two dis- two, two kind of um modes of discourse that are like playing chicken with each other you know kind of and and the the elephants are like stuck in the middle yeah I let think. me let me add one other quick point to that which is i also think in the west you know we're very solution oriented in our in our in our worldview that if only this happens, then this will solve the problem. So if China stops and shuts down the, arving, the carving factories, then the elephants live. If, you know, we only get, you know, Kenyan airways to enforce customs rules, then the, uh, the elephants live. And it's very solutionist in that respect. And, and I think that's, a, again, one of our problems is that we don't understand the subtleties of what Tendai is talking about, which basically, and I agree with you, Tendai, that the future of the elephant rests in the moral structure of that 14-year-old girl who's sitting on, on Weibo right now and laughing at her grandfather and humiliating her grandfather for buying an ivory cell phone cover. Um, that, that's where I think we have to do. And so if we think about supporting the communication channels that she uses and really going through the Chinese narrative and the African narratives rather than imposing a Western narrative on this, then there's probably a better chance. What can get through to that 14-year-old? Uh, Tendai, what's your, when you look through this issue, do you have hope or are you depressed when you look into the future about the elephants? Anna, I'm definitely hopeful because, um, as we said, more and more young people are, are becoming aware of this issue. And as they become aware of this issue, they take it up as a, as a cause, and um, many of them feel very strongly against um, elephant uh, elephant poaching, and they only they not only feel very strongly about it, they do something about it. So, I think uh, a couple of NGOs were organizing marches in in China, and they were very successful marches against um, elephant poaching. So I am very hopeful for the future because of that. You know, Kobus, I this is a pleasant surprise because I was about to rip my eyeballs out from the last two <laughs> podcasts that we did with depression and despair. And it's just really exciting that there actually is a glimmer of hope because it's not something that we associate with this issue. Uh, so, so Tendai, you know, you have done a great service to us to let us think about this in a different way. What's the best way that people can follow what you're doing and what you're reading, what you're thinking while you are pursuing your PhD uh, at Fudan in Shanghai? Well, I post occasionally to my tw- to my Twitter, which is at te Musawa, which is um, at t e m u s a k w a. And you can also follow me on the China Africa Facebook page Excellent. and the website. Yeah, so uh, ten, go to our website. You can look through, just search for, uh, just put in the word translation into our search engine and everything that Tendai's done will come up. Uh, and it's really, it's, it's just badass in like so many different ways. So I think it's fantastic. Kobus, uh, uh, if people want to follow what you're doing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? Um, you'll see me on our Facebook page as well. You'll see my name in, in brackets when I respond to people. And also I'm on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Of course, you can also find me 
on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We're now at 116,000 followers all over the world, many from Africa, uh, a growing number actually from China. It's starting to pop up in the stats. I guess there's people using uh, their VPNs to get over the Great Firewall, so that's exciting. So we're actually trying to bring this conversation together between Chinese and Africans, and Tendai is one of the voices that is helping us do that. So we definitely want to hear from you. Send us your comments. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think that, you know, people usually think I'm the jerk, Kobus, so that's fair enough. But do you, <laughs> what do you think of what Tendai and what Kobus have said? Uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. So you can follow us on, uh, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and on the BlackBerry Network uh, in South Africa as well. So until next time for another edition of the China in Africa podcast, thank you so much for listening.